0: Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, freelance garden historian Russell Bowes brings the story of the tulip to life with power, passion, and petals. Our speaker this evening uh, lectures on every subject under the sun. And uh, without more ado, I'm thrilled to introduce Russell Bowes. Thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I think that kind of introduction is called piling on the pressure. <laughs> um, so, ladies and gentlemen, what am my bid? Sixpence. Sixpence. Any advance on sixpence? These beautiful and exotic flowers are, of course, only worth what we are prepared to pay for them. We have a bid from the second row of sixpence... Um, back in our history, you would have paid a great deal more for them. That's something like two and a half years' salary. But not for these. Just for that one. So I will leave you thinking about the price of the tulip. Um, if we could have a picture, Please. Okay. In the middle of the 14th century, a beautiful and exotic visitor from the Far East stepped foot on European soil for the very first time. Um, Wearing an extensive wardrobe composed of glistening silk, um, which shielded her dark and mysterious eyes from the gaze of the curious... This captivating lady swept all before her and made people her willing slaves. Her beauty and her clothes became the stuff of legend and she could bring prestige and riches to anybody who was lucky enough to court her favour. But like anybody who is too free with their charms, she fell spectacularly from grace in the course of a single week. So, what sets apart these beautiful um, things um, from the other flowers which grow in our garden? Mainly because of the term which Shakespeare coined to describe the Queen of Old Nile, Cleopatra, and that is infinite variety. Prod it about and mess around with you all you like, but there's only so much that something like a daffodil or a cornflower is ever going to do for you. And because of this, fashion will often pick up a flower for a while and then drop it like a hot brick. Think of the fascination with clove pinks and garlics, uh, 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 carnations in the in the time of Shakespeare, or the hyacinth in the reign of Queen Victoria. Neither would let themselves be remade in a new image at the time, and so quickly both became passe. By contrast, flowers like the orchid, the rose and the tulip are capable of reinventing themselves time after time after time to suit every possible change in the aesthetic weather. With pinks and carnations in the 15th century, it was a case of what is possible becomes fashionable. Suddenly, with tulips reinventing themselves every year in the 1630s, the prevailing feeling was stood on its head and it was what is fashionable becomes possible. Until the science of micropropagation came along in the 20th century, the vigour of any tulip variety propagated by removing and planting the bulbs offsets would eventually fade away until cultivation of that particular variety had to be abandoned. And of course, nothing makes something fashionable like scarcity. If nobody's got it, then everybody wants it. By the time everybody's got it, nobody wants it anymore. A salutary lesson. Um, The history of this particular plant owes an awful lot to this chap who revels in the wonderful name of Ogier-Gisland de Bouzbek. The very fierceness of the passion that was unleashed in 17th-century Holland must have had something to do with its um, novelty in the West and the very suddenness of the flower's appearance on the scene. Um, Ogier Ghislaine de Busbeck was the Austrian ambassador at the court of Suleiman the Magnificent in Constantinople and claims to have introduced the tulip to Europe mainly through his habit of sending parcels of bulbs back to the city of Vienna soon after his arrival um, in Constantinople in 1554. The fact that the tulip's first voyage from its native homeland um, was as part of the diplomatic baggage would also have contributed to its sudden popularity. Court fashions have always been particularly quick to, um, to catch on with the, the common people. The tale of the tulip is not one which had to travel the world and be rewritten in many different languages before the virtues of the flower could be recognised. By the time of Busbeck's first consignment, the tulip already had its own coterie of followers in the East who had taken the flower already a considerable distance from its form in the wild, where it typically appears as a short-stemmed, pretty flower with a frank open face, nothing complicated, nothing exotic. The Ottoman Turks had discovered that these wildflowers were great changings, freely hybridizing with each other and um, giving new forms and shapes and colors, although it actually takes seven years for a tulip grown from seed to come to first flowering and showing its new face. It was also subject to, to spontaneous mutations um, in shape and colour. The tulip's very changeability, its mutability, was taken as a sign that nature cherished the tulip above all other flowers. And In his 1597 work, um, John Gerard says of the tulip, nature seems to play more with this flower than any other I do know of. In the Ottoman Empire the best way for a tulip to come to notice was for it to have absurdly long individual petals, each of which was drawn to a fine point as sharp as a needle. In drawings, paintings, fabrics and ceramics, the only places where the Turks' idea of tulip beauty actually survives. These elongated blooms, which are the ones at the bottom, um, look as if they have been pulled and stretched to their absolute limit by a craftsman of some kind, perhaps a glass blower, or perhaps a swordsmith would be a better one. The most popular metaphor um, in the Ottoman Empire for the shape of an individual tulip petal was the scimitar, which would eventually contribute um, towards the flower's very masculine symbolism. Whereas many other flowers um, with which we are familiar are undeniably feminine in form and character, for most of its history the tulip has always been seen as undeniably male. In fact, our English word tulip (coughs) is a corruption of the original Turkish word tulband, which means turban, the traditional male headgear of the Ottoman Empire. It's undeniable that a single tulip flower standing on a very upright stem with a pair of shapely leaves held at 45 degrees or or something like that, bears more than a passing resemblance to a single human figure standing up and wearing a turban. A successful Ottoman tulip had to be pure in colour and have smooth-edged petals held closely enough to hide the anthers within the centre of the flower. It could never be doubled. It could never have a superabundance of petals um, in the same way which a rose would eventually mutate into for it to be admired and considered beautiful. If it had more than five petals, it was rejected. Each spring, for a period of a couple of weeks, the Imperial Gardens in Constantinople were filled with tulips. Each of them grown individually um, and surrounded by raked gravel to show them off to their best advantage. Tulips who had bloomed too early and whose petals had flexed too wide were tied back shut with silver thread. Each variety was made, uh, was labelled with a small marker made of beaten silver, and the entire display in the Imperial Gardens was enhanced <coughs> Excuse me with small thin-necked vases made of precious materials each holding a single bloom straight upright which were planted in between the individual growing plants in the soil songbirds in gilded cages would provide the musical accompaniment and as dusk began to fall hundreds of tortoises with candles fixed to the top of their shells would be released and would lumber slowly through the gardens illuminating the display all the guests were required to dress in colours which flattered the display of tulips. To upstage the tulip, uh, these sultan's tulips was not only a serious breach of pu- protocol, but also in some cases a punishable offence. And what we have here is a wonderful um, crimson silk Ottoman robe dating from about 1520, decorated with tulip shapes. Um, At the appointed moment, a cannon would sound, the doors to the harem would be flung open, and the sultan's wives would be led into the garden by a coterie of eunuchs bearing flaming torches. And the whole scene would be repeated every night for as long as the tulips were in bloom. They would be singing, they would be feasting, there would be music. One of the first recipients of the parcels of tulip bulbs sent by de Busbeck um, to Europe was this chap, Carolus Clusius, who was director of the Imperial Botanical Gardens in Vienna. And if you're wondering why a man in such a lofty position looks so goddamn miserable, I am about to tell you. When he, moved from, um, when he moved to Leiden in the Netherlands to establish a new University Botanic Gardens in 1593, he took some of his bulbs with him from Vienna, not knowing that his beautiful new visitor was carrying the chromosomes of a virus deep inside her, the virus that would eventually spell financial ruin for many thousands of people. Clusius was ostentatiously protective and very possessive of his tulips, with disastrous consequences. In the words of one contemporary account, no one could procure them from him, not even for money. So plans were made by which the best and most of these plants were stolen by night, whereupon he lost courage and the desire to continue their cultivation but those who had stolen the tulips lost no time in increasing them by sowing the seeds. And by this means the 17 provinces, i.e. the 17 provinces of um, the Netherlands, were well stocked with this beautiful flower. So this is why um, the director of the Botanical Gardens looks so miserable. Um, People would flaunt the tulips. That they had had stolen from the botanical garden. In one case, um, a Viennese hostess was, um, um, what's the word I'm not, tactless enough to actually show Clusius around her garden, which had been stocked with his own tulips stolen from the university beds. The noteworthy point about um, the stolen tulips is that that they were all propagated by the thieves by seeds. And as I said, tulip seeds take seven years to come to flower-bearing capacity, Um, and they don't come true. Their offspring bears very little resemblance to their parents, given the flowers' variability... After seven years, the 17 provinces of the Netherlands would have been stocked with an absolutely extraordinary array of differently shaped and coloured individual tulips. And it was probably this very promiscuous mixing of the gene bank which led to the Dutch eventually managing to coach such an an astonishing variety of shapes, colours and forms out of what until that point was a relatively simple flower. Now, for, for good reasons, the, um, the Dutch... Is that, is that focused? I don't have quite the right glasses on. Um, for good reason, the, the Dutch have never been utterly content to accept nature as they found it. What beauty there is in the Netherlands is largely a result of human effort. It was often said that the monotony of the Dutch landscape gave rise to dreams of colourful and unusual flowers. And botany in the 15th and 16th century, became practically a national obsession. Land in Holland being so scarce and therefore by definition very expensive, Dutch gardens were usually fantastic exercise in miniature, usually measured in square yards rather than acres, and frequently accessorised with small mirrors in order to make them look larger. Now the Dutch thought of their gardens as exquisite jewel boxes, tiny but perfect. And in such a small space, generally enclosed, a flower as erect, um, singular and strikingly coloured as a tulip could make a powerful statement. And to make statements about one's sophistication and wealth has always been one of the reasons why people plant gardens in the first place. Um, In the 17th century, the Dutch people were practically the richest people in Europe because of their place at the heart of the international trading routes. Their Calvinist faith didn't stop them from indulging in the pleasures of conspicuous display. The exoticism and the expense of tulips um, certainly recommended them for ostentatious display, but so did the fact that among all the flowers we know, the tulip is one of the most extravagantly useless. Um, Up until the Renaissance period, most of the flowers in cultivation had been useful in some way, as well as beautiful. They were a source of food, of medicine, of dye or perfume. And the tulip was, and still is, a thing of beauty. No more, no less. What you see is what you get and that's all you get. If the tulip's completely useless beauty um, suited the Dutch taste for display, it also meshed with the humanism of the age, which was trying basically to get some kind of breathing space between art and religion. Unlike the rose or the lily, the tulip was not enlisted as a Christian symbol, although What became known as tulip mania would change all that. To paint a vase of flowers was to delve into the wonders of nature rather than to dip into the storehouse of religious iconography. Um, The tulip's chaste beauty also made it a perfect expression of the Dutch temperament. Um, The tulip is the very coolest and most reserved of floral characters. In fact, the Dutch people considered that the tulip's um, very lack of scent was a virtue in itself, a proof of the flower's chasteness and its masculine moderation. That was, of course, until a late spring day in the very early 1630s when the tulip bloomed. and People noticed that they were different to the year before. All across the Netherlands, people were discovering that what the year before had bloomed as plain, simple-coloured flowers were now striped, blotched, streaked or patched with other colours. From deep within the middle of the bulb, the virus had risen to the surface and created horticultural mayhem. Now, the the colour of a tulip... um, (coughs) consists of two chemical pigments working in tandem with each other. A base colour, which is always yellow or white, and a second overlaid colour, which is called an anthocyanin. The mixture of the two chemicals determines the colour that we perceive on the surface of the petal. Now, the, the virus which attacked the stocks of bulbs in the Netherlands worked by partially yet irregularly suppressing the anthocyanin, um, therefore allowing a a portion of the underlying colour to come to the top and show through. It wasn't until the 1920s, after the invention of the the electron microscope, that scientists discovered that the virus actually was spread from tulip flower to tulip flower by the peach aphid, um, Mises persicae. and Of course, in the small, rich, fruit-bearing gardens of the Dutch people, peach trees were very popular. The virus was actually supplying something that the tulip needed to help it up onto centre stage. It was giving it just that touch of Horticultural abandon, I think, is the the best way of um, describing it. Um, Something to soften its previous rather chilly formality. Ironically, what what was making the tulip newly beautiful um, was what also eventually would destroy it. As well as playing havoc with the anthocyanin and therefore the colours, the tulip virus affects the bulb's ability to reproduce itself. Colour-broken tulips produced fewer and considerably smaller offsets than ordinary tulips would do. But, of course, at the time, nobody knew this. All they knew was that their tulips had suddenly put on beautiful, extraordinary, and extravagant new clothes. Everybody wanted them. And, of course, if something is beautiful and fashionable and in limited supply, you have to be prepared to pay for it. Um, There were only a dozen or so... Um, specimens of the beautiful crimson red and white streaked tulip Semper Augustus in existence. And a chap called Dr Adrian Powell owned all of them. He was a director of the newly formed Dutch East India Company and grew tulips on his estate in Heemstead near Harlem. Through the early 1630s, he was bombarded by wildly escalating offers from people to buy his dozen or so Semper Augustus tulips, but he wouldn't part with them at any price. <coughs> Excuse me. He actually judged the pleasure of looking at his flowers far more than any financial profit. Um, his constant refusal to sell his bulbs, of course, only whipped the market up to greater heights of frenzy. Um, And just as a little footnote, um, it's interesting to note that among all the species of flowers, tulips were the first species to be given individual variety names and called after people. In the Netherlands in the 1630s, they were generally called after famous admirals, famous generals and famous um, and very wealthy traders. But of course, there was no regulation system in force at the time. Um, If a new variety of tulip was discovered, you could call it exactly what you wanted. Um, And eventually, some kind of regulation came into this, whereby tulips were categorized into three particular types. Bizarre, which were the slightly cheaper red and yellow striped flowers. violetten which were generally based on some combination of purple and one other colour. And the most expensive and therefore the rarest tulips were called the Rosen. They were generally some combination of red, white, cream and very pale green. And Semper Augustus was the, the most famous and the most... Um, finally, striped of the rozen varieties. Now, the um, the autumn of 1635 seems to have been the point where we reach a turning point. 1635 is the year when the trade in actual physical bulbs in the, in the Netherlands gave way to the trade in promissory notes, little slips of paper which would detail the flowers in question, the dates they would be delivered to the purchaser and their price. Before then, the tulip market had to follow the rhythm of the seasons. Bulbs could only change hands after the flowers had faded in late May, early June, and before the bulb had to be returned to the ground in October friends as it was, the, the trade in tulip bulbs before 1635 was still rooted in reality. You had to pay cash money for actual bulbs that you could hold in your hand. But in autumn 1635, um, something arrived called the wind handle, um, the wind trade. Suddenly the tulip trade was a year-round affair. Um, And the connoisseurs and the growers who shared a genuine interest in the flowers were joined by legions of newly minted florists who really couldn't have cared less about the flower other than what they could get for it. Now, I had to define the term florist here as not somebody who sells flowers as in the modern term, but somebody who specialises in studies and is interested in individual species. Of course, the, the frenzied um, turns of the market very rapidly were picked up by social commentators and what we have here um, is an original engraving called Flora's Ship of Fools by Henrik Gerrit in which the wagon of Flora, goddess of flowers, um, races onwards towards destruction, driven across the sands by the fickle winds of fortune, and followed by the citizens of the city of Harlem, where the Dutch futures trading, as it became called, was at its highest. And all the citizens are following the cart of flora, desperate to climb on board. The small flag right at the top of the mast um, depicts um, an image of the world turned upside down. And the larger flag Um, at the back, um, depicts um, a jester's cap, or a fool's cap, surmounted by three Semper Augustus tulips. The goddess's two assistants, sitting at the front of the wagon, are Forget Everything, who is weighing bulbs in a pair of scales, and Lady Idleness, who is releasing the bird of hope away from the chariot. They are accompanied on the wagon by three men, Eager for Wealth, Travelling Light, and Mr Greedybeard. In the background, a ship is being blown ashore towards its disaster and nobody is paying any attention. Rushing to climb aboard the wagon and get in on the shore thing, people sold their businesses, mortgaged their houses, and invested their life savings in small slips of paper representing future flowers. Predictably, the new flood of capital coming into um, the market drove prices completely wild. In the space of a month, the the price of a single bulb of the yellow and red striped variety Giel en Root van der Leiden leapt from 46 guilders to 515. And a bulb of the variety of Switzers from 60 to 1,800 guilders. Now, to put that in some kind of context, um, a skilled craftsman, an artisan, perhaps a cabinet maker or a jewellery smith, could expect to earn in the Netherlands at this period around 800 guilders a year. So you get this extraordinary system developing of having this little brown bulb sitting in the ground doing nothing very much at all, while its price is being traded up to amazing levels on little slips of paper passed between individuals. Now, the natural meeting place for all this activity was the tavern, um, which made an enormous difference to the way that chilips were bought and sold because the whole business got caught up in the ritual giving and drinking of toasts. Each trade would be celebrated with a round of drinks and the whole thing would kind of pass in a haze of alcoholic optimism. Um, There was a feeling of, we must get on the wagon. Everybody else is doing it, everybody is making a lot of money, me too. As lifting day approached, when the bulbs actually came out of the ground and would be physically handed over, the mania became increasingly intense, increasingly whipped up. Nobody wanted to be left with the responsibility of having the actual bulbs in hand for fear that they might not be worth what the market was saying that they were worth. A bulb might actually be traded in the end 15 or 20 times a day. It became effectively impossible to trace the bulb's ownership and who owed what to whom because the bulb's Um, had been traded so many times on the slips of paper from hand to hand. And of course, if you didn't have the cash, you traded in commodities or possessions. In 1636, a single bulb of the red and white striped variety Semper Augustus changed hands for eight pigs, four oxen... 12 sheep, 24 tonnes of wheat, 48 tonnes of rye, two hogsheads of wine, four barrels of beer, two tonnes of butter, a tonne of cheese, a silver beaker, a suit of fine woolen clothing, a four-poster bed with mattress, bedding and curtains, and a rowing boat. All of which, of course, makes a partridge in a pear tree look rather paltry, doesn't it? Um, And, of course... It couldn't last. It was completely unsustainable. What goes up must eventually always come down. The reason why the crash came remains elusive and has never really been pinned down, but with real tulips about to come out of the ground in early spring 1637, and with real money soon to be exchanged for all those slips of paper, the market got the jitters. On the 2nd of February 1637, the florists of Harlem gathered as usual to conduct their trade um, in auctioning bulbs in the tavern. And the the trader sought to start the bidding with a bulb of switzers for sale at 1,250 guilders. Finding no takers, he tried again at 1,100, then at 1,000, then at 950. All of a sudden, every man in the room, men who days before had played comparable sums themselves for very similar tulips, understood that, that, again, the wind handle had changed direction. Um, People began to realise very suddenly the possibility of ruin, as they couldn't meet all the enormous chain of obligations that they'd acquired. Everybody suddenly tried to cash in their profits. Um, dumped their remaining stock and the word spread like wildfire bearing in mind that the fastest the message could travel between individual towns was at the speed of a galloping horse within two days the news had ricocheted around the entire province tulips became unsellable at any price when the tulips finally bloomed that spring nobody cared The reign of the tulip, and that is an incredibly dark slide for which I (laughs) apologise. It's an incredibly dark painting, unfortunately, so it doesn't show up very well, it doesn't contrast, but basically what we have here is a Semper Augustus tulip surrounded by rotting vegetation, toads and mushrooms. The reign of the tulip was finally over. Within the space of a few days, the exotic and beautiful visitor from the East had suddenly fallen from grace, and it became, in writing, in painting and throughout art, a symbol of vanity of sharp practice and financial disaster. What was known as the tulip mania, which brought wealthy families to their knees and is still cited in financial textbooks as an example of what can happen when people lose their grip on reality, um, came to an end. But, of course, what happens is when the chink of coins and the rustle of banknotes fills our ears, it drowns out the sound of common sense. We should have listened, we should have remembered, and we should have learned in case it all happens again. Today's lecture was brought to you by Gordon Brown, Lehman Brothers, and the Royal Bank of Scotland. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you. (coughs)